Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Wide Care Podcast. I'm Rashma Sajani, the founder of Girls Who Code and the Marshall Plan for Moms. And I'm Tim Allen, the CEO of Care.com. Hey, Tim. How's it going? Hey, Rashma. It's great to be with you. You know, I love that we get some dedicated time to talk. You know, we're always so running around doing our our work life and our parenting life. It's great just seeing you and having dedicated time one-on-one. It's great seeing you t- today too, especially with like, th- for on my end, with three hours of sleep. Uh, I know. But I know, but this is what happens with parents, you know? And I, I love that we're having this conversation because I was just drawn to you immediately. Um, I have met so many CEOs in my life and very few of them are as real and as authentic um, and you don't sugarcoat things. And I think with so much of what parents are going through, what moms are going through today, you know, I think we need corporate leader, leaders that are like willing to have an authentic, like unbarred, no holds barred conversation. And so, you know, today, whether you're a caregiver or not, you know, the the, the care structure or infrastructure in America is like so broken. Mm-hmm. And it's not just my problem or your problem. It's like everyone's problem, whether you have a kid or not. And I'm really excited about this podcast because, you know, it affects everyone. And I think people are going to be excited about what we have to say. I think they're going to learn a lot um, because this issue is like fundamental to the economy, to economic security, to competitiveness, to joy. It matters. I really appreciate that you say that. You know, one of the things you and I bonded over is we are parents. We are parents first. You know, we have a lot of work ahead of us in the corporate structure, especially and, you know, the thing I've always loved about our conversations, and the thing I love, the, I just am always in awe of when you and I are around, is not only are you this visionary ideation person, but you are a change agent. Like you roll up your sleeves, you dig in, and you are the catalyst for change. You know, as I've read your books, and as you and I have talked, I've been so thoroughly impressed with all of the work you've done. And there's an authenticity in it that you look at it and you go, if we are not going to actually call the structures what they are, if we're not going to look at these structures authentically and really say the truth of the matter, there's no way we could either dismantle them or rebuild them or actually have it inspire something new. And I always feel so lucky to be in the space of that with you. So like this podcast for me is a dream come true. I really do get to have the incredible conversations with you, but also the incredible conversations with the people around us who are influencing that change. And I, you know, this weekend I was spending time with the kids. It's summer. We're, we're playing and having a good time and doing the fun stuff. And I was, I had this just introspective moment where I was like, I get to record the podcast tomorrow and I really actually get to play some small voice in this matter with someone I consider a friend and then also someone who inspires me. So, you know, really looking forward to this podcast. I'm really oh my excited God, to be Thank here. you. I last night was getting ready to like, you know, study for what we're going to talk about. And like, of course, it's like bedtime and the kids don't want to go to bed. It's like, mama, mama, sleep with me. I fall asleep on my notes. And then I'm like, okay, I'm just going to get up early. And then my son, Sai, has been having these night terrors. Oh, no. So, of course, he decides to have one last night. And I'm like, ugh. But, you know, I woke up and I'm like, like, this is the reality of every single parent. Like, you think you have something really important that you want to do on Monday. You're going to get a good night's rest. You plan everything. And then you show up and, like, invariably it blows up. And so it's even more more of a reason why – 
if you have childcare, if you have a company that supports your childcare, if you can afford it, right? If all these things make it easier for you when those moments come, you know, which are unexpected and your kids need you and things don't work the way that you thought they were, you at least can show up like I can with you today with understanding and compassion and and it's easier. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of the world, right, that we want for people. Absolutely. Like access to care is so vital to the success of individuals, right? To people, for them to be able to have the careers they dream of, the life they dream of. And access to care is not universal. And that's something that is really a missing and starts to create the gap, which I know we'll explore and go into. What I'm struck by what you said is really, is like, it's universal to all parents, right? It's like, I don't know if you had this experience. It's I think I have it figured out, or I feel like I have to perceive to my child I have it all figured out. When underneath the surface, I have nothing figured out, and I'm just trying to make it work. Like, you know, like yeah. I am literally the same way you are, and I have that experience too. Like, my twin boys, seven years old, uh, the light of my life. It was the most fortunate thing for my partner and I to be able to have our kids and be, make them a, a piece of our family, right? And they have amplified my life in ways I never would have thought, but. One of them wakes up on the dot at 5.15 every morning. <laughs> and no matter how many times, and similar to you, I was like, I'm going to get up early. I'm going to look at my notes. I'm going to like study. I'm going to do the thing. No matter how many times I've course corrected or I've had the conversation with him or we sit down and talk, the child does not understand being quiet at seven years old. So every light in the house turns on. Every light. Of course. And then, you're all waking like, up. You they're all, we are all, like, <laughs> you're he's all like, up. I'm up. If you're all I'm up. up, you're exactly, yeah. that's exactly <laughs> it. And so I learned to embrace it. And I laugh a little bit about it, but like, I'm groggy. I'm tired. I'm making cereal. Like, I'm a half of a shell of a human being at 5 15 in the morning. And like, similar to you, it's like, I just look at it and I go, wow, like, all of my plans get thrown out so often. And I am really good at plan C and D, like, figuring it yeah. out in the moment, you know, as a parent. Totally. And it's like you convince yourself, like, it's so funny, like this past week, my husband and I, Nahal, went to vacation by ourselves. We do this every year. We go once a week. Thank God my mom will take the kids so we don't go with them. And the entire vacation, I slept like 10, 11, 12 hours. And I had for so long convinced myself that I just like to sleep seven hours a day. You know what I mean? But I'm just a morning person. No, I'm not, right? (laughs) And it's it's just it, and it's it's because you love them and it's because you have to but you just you realize and you, when you have these moments I do on vacation like I I was like oh I, I am sleep deprived mm-hmm. you know I am exhausted I am tired and I have a two year old and a seven year old like yeah. I'm not sleeping right now right in this part of my life and so it's just yeah it's so it's and I think part of it. I hope in this podcast too that we give people moments and opportunities to not just learn about the state of care, but to learn something about themselves. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm interested. To, like, like completely agree. This is the opportunity to really pull back the covers, have the conversation about care, the industry. There'll be the business facets of it. There'll be the human facets of it with caregivers in the world, but also it is that exploration for parents. And what you shared is so right. It's, I know on vacation, I, very similarly, we'll be like, oh, I don't have to set, I'm not up at 5.15. I get to sleep in until a luxurious seven or eight, right? And you're like, okay, this is great. Do you think as parents, we convince ourselves and then it becomes normalized and so it becomes numb that you just kind of don't realize your needs underneath some of yeah. it? 
Yeah. We talk a lot about this at Marshall Plan for Moms when we're like taking a step back and examining motherhood in America. And I think so much of what it means to be a mom in America, it means to be a martyr. Mm. You know, we had done this ad um, for Mother's Day about mom's guilt. And we did this survey afterwards about like, you know, and most people, if you were a dad, a, a childless person, whatever, you watch the video and you're like, wow, moms deserve more. Yeah. And moms watch this video about mom's guilt and they're like, oh, I, I don't deserve anything. It's so interesting, right? So I, so I do think as parents, so much of maybe why change isn't happening as fast enough is because we are actually not advocating for the things we need because we kind of like, well, this is just the way it is. This is mm. what it means to be an apparent in, in America today. And I think part of what I think we have the opportunity to do, right, is like to sh- tell people, like when we talk about what's happening in other countries, you know, and t- what's, what is possible? It doesn't have to actually be this way. It can, you know, be different. Yeah. Um, and I think there's like, a, that's going to go back to this whole, like our kids and they're sleeping and the night tears. Like, I think that we know like, like at certain stages of your kid's life, like you sign up for, you're just going to be sleep deprived, yep. right? Till they're eight or nine. And then they start like sleeping on their own or in their own bed and like, or they can wake up and make breakfast by themselves and you can have, but but I think what's happening with care in America, it is like this sustained, prolonged trauma hmm. where you never actually feel like you get a break yeah. or that anything actually changes. And that's when you realize, wow, this is like something more fundamental, um, yeah. tell me about you. Cause I think people like, I love you and like, I love yeah. everything that you've done. And I think it just be so, such a gift to tell like our listeners, like who is Tim Allen? Who are you? I, you know, it, it, so grew up overseas. I'm a child of military parents, uh, was there until I was in high school. And then my parents, uh, semi-retired, had never, you know, they had grown up in the Chicago area. So I had family roots back to the Chicago area. Uh, and my dad decided to move to Oklahoma. So Oklahoma was the first United States I'd ever lived in. It was my experience yeah. in the United States. So I, I walk in this, you know, growing up in Europe, you, you go like on military bases, you have a picture of what America is like, but just so you mm. know, like the context, like everything was about a year delayed from what was going on in America. So as American movies came out, we would get them about a year later. <laughs> so I walk into Oklahoma and I'm like, this is America. You know, like this is, and, and by the way, in many ways it is, it is central, it is Americana through and through. But, you know, I walked in as this awkward, you know, tall, lanky kid who uh, was referencing movies about a year old. So immediately they're like, who's the strange foreign kid, right? Like, who's it? like even though I'd grown up on military bases, I'm yeah. an American country by nature, from, right? right? Like, like <laughs> who's the weird kid, right? So it was great. I grew up in Oklahoma. My, parent, my, my mother's still there. Um, my parents divorced and my mom ended up, my mom is a nurse by trade. Um, and so I became kind of a single parent child in high school. And uh, my mom- Was that hard? My, it was. It was. It was, you know, the hardest part about it was for so many years of my life, it was my mom and my dad. And then there was the, a break that was really about their relationship and nothing to do with the kids. But as a kid, it's really mm. hard to distinguish like, oh, this is like I did, like there's something about me or it becomes kind of like that self-centered world as you're a child, right? Because you wonder what went wrong or what you could have done differently, even though you had no control over the situation, right? Like two adults making a decision, no longer in love. And 
you know, the other hard part about it was just my dad stepped away. My dad stepped away and really didn't participate in the family. I think he, mm-hmm. over the, you know, I, I conjecture, we haven't really talked about it, but I, I assume he really decided that like there was shame built into it or something built into it for him. That was all of his issue that he stepped away from the relationship, but he also stepped away from the family. So I became a single parent kid kind of overnight. So not only am I adjusting to a new society, like a new world, right? And understanding what America is about. I'm then adjusting to a new family structure. And my mom went into a pretty deep depression during that period of time. And so then I also became the high school therapist for a parent who was also having to figure out how to put it all back together, right? Not only put herself back together to find love in her 40s, um, you know, but all, she was also figuring out, I have children I need to take care of and provide for. And so I had to play that therapist in high school in a lot of ways to really um, be there for her and help her piece things back together. Um, there were mornings, you know, there were days where she didn't want to get out of bed. And, you know, as a 16-year-old, you go, it's it's just such a night and day from what had been there previously. And so, you just, you know, you look at it and you go... Okay. And you, you, you power through my sister's at university. And so I was like alone in, in a lot of ways during that. And that was very informative of like what parents struggle with behind the scenes for me. Um, it taught me a lot of early lessons and it also taught me the power of community. You know, my mom really relied on people who she worked with, the nurses she worked with, the other members around the community to, help take care of me. Like if she had to work an overnight shift or they, they would check in, you know, no one wants to leave a 16 year old home alone. Trust me. <laughs> so I get it. <laughs> and nor should she have probably. Right. But like, it was a very interesting and, and developmental time where I learned the power of community. Mm. And th- there was all of that. I went to university of Oklahoma. Um, I, computer science is my degree. I was really, you know, I, I, I so many reasons myself, why I like you. Yep. You know, like, <laughs> I age myself. It was the early years of the internet time period. I was one of those kids who had a Commodore 64 and loved Prodigy, if anyone remembers that. And I went to San Diego to, to join a startup and was working there and then interviewing during the late nineties and, and came across a company that I fell in love with the management team. And, uh, on the spot, they offered me a job in New York. I never wanted to live in New York. I had no dreams of that. Right. I was a California surf kid and I was like, Ooh, winter. Like, I don't know if I can, yeah. you know, I don't know if I'm built for too many that. people, <laughs> too right. many people. Right. And took the job, went to New York and, and fell in love, like fell in love hard for mm. the city. I had that quintessential moment where you're looking up the streets and the avenues and it's the fall day and the leaves are coming down. And I was oh, like, God. Oh God, I love this place. And that company got acquired by another company, by another company. And I've been with that company ever since. And so I've done stints at running uh, CEO Vimeo um, mm-hmm. within uh, the company called IAC. And I've done stints running other companies. And then a couple of years ago, care.com came across our desk as a potential acquisition. And I was, I was established in my career. I was happy with the company I was running at that time. I loved the people. I built it from scratch. But the draw of the making a difference in the world to disrupt what is in essence a dinosaur in all intents and purposes was just too powerful. 
And mm-hmm. and I knew this required real love and nurturing and you know um and 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 taking to it. And so I was drawn to it having had two kids and struggling with hiring caregiving help and finding quality help and I knew that there had to be a better way. There just had to be a and better way. You became a CEO of care.com before the pandemic, right? Right. It was 2 weeks before the pandemic. We had wow. finished the acquisition. So February of 2020, mid-February 2020, we closed the acquisition and Two weeks later, the world went into disarray and everything shut down. So and care I became am, the conversation. Yes, yes. So you have all these big plans, as you know, running an organization yep. that that literally just got thrown out the door, like just gone. And it became how do I connect with people and people in the organization through Zoom, through Zoom, and through uh, uh, you know these digital electronic means. And how do I connect with our customers? How do I connect with caregivers? And so it really took a conscious effort. It was it was extremely challenging, but I think the world is better for it. To be frank with you, and not to this doesn't it's not to glorify the pandemic by any means. It's travesty. It's a travesty in so many ways. But I think the world got to really evaluate certain things that were really important to itself. So I was really thankful for that piece of it. I'm never thankful for the pandemic, and um, really just. You know, it's heartbreaking a lot of the stories I heard, but I was really thankful for the opportunity to be able to connect with people on a level I don't think would have been possible. Yeah. Well, they always say, like, don't waste a good crisis. And I do think that caregiving generally, even when I was having a conversation with someone the other day about like the mommy wars between stay at home moms and working women. And even I think that divide, that tension really shifted in the pandemic because everybody was working, and everyone was a stay at home mom. Everyone saw. You know all of this unpaid labor. That's that's so interesting. So funny how it's so funny how life works that way. Um, totally. In that, like you were meant to be leading this organization at this moment. Yeah, you know, like I, I completely agree. It's like there's this this kismet thing that happens in the world where no matter what I think, you know, like it's it it you know you could be intentional, right? But like. The, the, the life has a way of crafting you to the right space in the right spot at the right time. So, yeah, that's that's a little about me. You know, I, it's I'm sure I'm sure there's a lot more to unfold inside of that. But you know, let's talk about you. Like, I want to hear about you. <laughs> like, to to take the spot oh, off like me from like, like well, I, I, love how, you, I like the direct I like the direction <laughs> you went into. So, I mean, I grew up. Uh, you know, my parents came here as refugees. In um, 1973, a lot of people don't know, but there's like these huge populations of Indians in Africa that were br- brought over by the British. There's this crazy day. And so my my father, my mother, my grandparents were born in Uganda. Oh, wow. um, and then one day this dictator, Idi Amin, just got, had like a dream that he should expel all of the Ugandan Asians from the country. And my father was just watching television and there goes the... You know, goes Idi Amin saying, well, you got 90 days to leave the country oh or else you're shot on spot. And they were had a pretty entrenched family network um, in Uganda, right? So talk about like how their caregiving situation, you know, shifted from Uganda where you had this almost like village of aunties and uncles and grandparents and all the kids were together and taken care of. And now they have to scramble and figure out where they're going to get um, refugee status. Wow. And so both of my parents had pretty large families, you know, um, several brothers and sisters on both sides. 
most of our family ends up having getting refugee status in the UK. So people don't know this, but like in the 70s, UK actually had refugee camps all across the country of Ugandan Asians that were looking to be resettled. My father was fortunate to get him and my mom visas um, to come to the United States because they were both engineers and it was the 70s and the country was desperately seeking engineers. So they show up, you know, early 20s. My mother's pregnant with my sister they don't speak the language. They are like wearing shorts and t-shirts in the middle middle of Chicago in January. They're taken in by the Catholic charities. They're, you know, found a apart, you know, a one-room apartment. Um, my even though they have engineering degrees, my dad works as a machinist in a plant. My mother sell, sells cosmetics until they're able to get engineering, you know, degrees. They finally save up money to buy, you know, a small house in like Schaumburg, Illinois. They're so happy, you know, and again, for immigrants, it's like they wanted the things that they lost in their home. I mean, they were situated, they had businesses, they had homes, they had resources. And here they come and they have nothing. They've Mm. lost all their money. They have no family. They don't have any friends, you know, and so getting established. And so I think very much my parents, my father's, I think position was like to become American, Mm. to, you know, he'd go to Toastmasters every week and get rid of his accent. We never spoke Hindi or Gujarati, you know what I mean? At home, we just looked for ways to quote, because back then in the 70s, it was all about assimilation, Yes, you know? And so I got to Americanize, you know, my children. And I think I very much, my sister and I, I think very much fell into that too, because we were growing up in this working class family that just didn't have a lot of Indian families. And, you know, back then it wasn't how it is now, right? Mm. Where you have, you know, Bridgerton and you have, back then it was very, the 80s was very blonde, very white, very, you know what I mean? Middle of the country. And like every representation of from beauty to intelligent, you know, you just weren't a part of it. And so all you wanted to do as a kid was just, fit in, you know, I think my my parents, you know, so there's a lot of, always a lot of tension at home between money and jobs and how to balance things and kids and feeling isolated. And again, now their parents are back in England. They don't have a relationship with them, you mm-hmm. know, or they're trying to get a relationship with them. They're trying to find their own community. And so there's always, home was tense, you know, and then here I am as a girl named Reshma Sajani, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. in Schaumburg, Illinois, <laughs> Trying to, you know, trying to fit in. And so, so you know, middle school was rough. You know, in high school, I think I started really finding my own identity. I found other Indian kids that lived in other neighborhoods. Oh, and we would cool. have this community of Indian kids where we had our own prom and we had our own parties. And we, you know what I mean, listened to hip hop and went to like Bollywood hip hop parties and like had a crew of best friends that where I found my own acceptance and, but it wasn't part of my, you know, it wasn't in Schomburg high school and part of my community. It was outside. And so, um, you know, I was always an activist. You know, I led my first March when I was 13. I was always trying to understand and unpack identity and race and poverty and equality. Uh, And that was really a through line, you know, from high school to college to law school to, you know, run. And I I ran for, you know, I I graduated with $300,000 in student loan debt. So I, unlike you, which you, I feel like you kind of found your thing quickly. I zigzagged. Mm. I was in jobs I hated, 
because I needed to pay off my student loans. I was lost. I never, even though I knew, I think from the time I was little, like who I wanted to be, I just didn't know how to get there. And it wasn't until my early thirties, I'm a late bloomer as all my psychics tell me, Um, you know, it wasn't until my early thirties that I was like, oh no, 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 no. Like I, I need to just live the life that I want to live and I want to be an activist. I want to be in politics. And so I just quit. I ran for United States Congress as the first South Asian American woman to ever run for U.S. Congress. I ran against like Carolyn Maloney, who was like an 18 year incumbent. I thought I could like shake every hand, meet every voter. I got my ass kicked. Like it was not even close. And I was shocked, right? When I didn't win, I didn't even have like a concession speech in my purse. And I was, you know, I was completely persona non grata in the Democratic Party because I did not wait my turn. Mm-hmm. You know, when Ocasio did it years later, you know, she was celebrated for it, thank God. But it was like, who is this woman? What is she doing? And so, but the best thing about losing that race was I was like, oh, like, I want to make a difference. I want to mm-hmm. make change. And whether it's in politics or, and it became in Girls Who Code, which is a nonprofit that I started to teach. Um, now 450,000 girls to code and half a billion through our work. You know, I was always chasing equality, Mm. chasing opportunity, fighting for those who I think had been wronged. And whether that was girls and now moms, you know, being in that position, as we say in Hinduism, of being a warrior, you know what I mean? And being a fighter and using my voice or creating movements to bring about change is like the is the place where I feel the most at home and where I feel like I am kind of giving back, you know, to this nation that literally saved my parents' life. I love that. There's so much richness in everything you just like your story, right? Like the the interested. Do your parents reflect back now? It, they're clearly was like, you know, very hard times and creating a new life for themselves and really starting from nothing, so to speak, like zero, right? Showing up in, in Chicago. And do they look back now and go, it was probably one of the best things that happened to them? Do they reflect back on that and know that coming to America and and having this disruption that was completely thrust upon them? Do they look back now and think, do they see the life you've been able to create? Do they see the lives that they've been able to create and reflect back on that? And you know, I, I probably, like, you haven't had enough of these conversations with my dad because I feel like in our culture, it's like you don't yeah. talk about these things. Oh, yeah. and you, yeah, But yeah. they come out in different ways. But I know you just said that when you're talking about your mom that, like, it gave you an opportunity to see her almost as a human yeah. in her experience. And so I think there are a lot of things that happened to my parents, the discrimination that they felt they faced mm. at work, the opportunities that they didn't get. Um you know, the um, the things that people said to them on the street, the indignities that they had to face on a constant basis, knowing that you were, like in some, you know, in some ways I think they, my father I think sometimes looks at me, you know, I, I gave um, a commencement speech at Yale and he, my dad was there with me. And, and I just remember watching him while I was kind of standing up there. And I know that there's like moments where he has, where he says, God, like, it was all worth it when I look mm. at her, right? Mm. Because I've struggled, but not in the same way. Yeah. Like, I, I think for them, they it was just true that they weren't, my father wasn't going to be giving Yale's commencement speech. Right. You know what I mean? Like, he right. wasn't, it, it took time to get to that place, right? Yeah. And so I think that that is hard because he was 
25 when he was here too. You know, he was young. Yeah. And they were young. And so, but not knowing that you couldn't reach your fullest potential because the country wasn't ready yet, mm. I think is hard. But I think when he looks at me and he looks at my sister, you know, who's an amazing OBGYN doctor in Georgia, I think he, I think we are the embodiment of the American dream. I think totally. this was what the struggle was about. And I, and I do think for many immigrants, they feel like that was their tax that they had to pay. You know, we're going to talk about our assignment later, but it was interesting when I was talking to him about it, right? Um, it's like there's a lot of gratitude, mm-hmm. you know, rather than a lot of anger, which That's is interesting. Incredible. That's incredible. You know, it, it's you talk about the American dream. I also think it's a parental dream in a lot of instances, mm. right? You want to see your children exceed and succeed. And I think Similar to your parents, though, though not akin, right? Your parents clearly faced a lot of systemic issues that were not the country wasn't ready to tackle head on, and we're still tackling. We're to say we scratched the the surface is a vast, dramatic overstatement, right? There's still a lot to unpack inside of that. But knowing that your father looks at you and gets to say, "Wow, that's my daughter," and the choices that I made led to this, right? And then same thing with my mom. You know, I look at it and I go, mm. "I don't, I, I don't." I wouldn't wish that upon anyone, right? Having to deal with that depression and having to to deal with the moment and the introspection of what occurs at that point in time. But I know she looks at me now and she goes, I, you know, you've, you've completely blossomed to this human that like, I'm so proud of. And that in of itself, even when I think about my kids, I want I, whatever that looks like for them, right? I don't have the traditional, my kids have to do X, Y, Z. I have the, I want them just to be great in the world and yeah. really make a difference. And yeah. 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 And I mean, I don't know when I look at you and I feel this way about myself, it's like, I just feel so lucky that I get yes. to do what I want to do. Yes. And I don't feel like anything is put upon me or I'm forced. And that's all I want, right? That's all we want for our our our, our kids, our boys to like feel that way, you know, yeah. um, for my boys to feel that way. So, but it's interesting. I mean, even going back to both of our families, it's like, you know, we talk a lot about in the in the you know structural um, breakdowns, but you know, when even when we're talking about the system of care, sometimes the only breakdown is the marriage, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, and like giving. Like so much of, you know, I was, I was reading somewhere like one third of the divorces are about the chores. Yeah. Right. And about not, I mean, if you even think about like what the lack of a system of care has done to marriages, oh, you yeah. know, in our country, it's enormous. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's compounding pressure, right? To, to the study you read, the one third are about chores. It's the subscription of kind of the normalities that people should ha- should the roles they should take inside of a relationship, right? And then on top of that, you've got kids who are demanding, and it's like who else is going to do it? It's like it's just compounding so often in relationships, and it really does influence the caregiving community, right? It influences yeah. how people define care. You know, the one thing I've learned, if anything, over the last two years, and and to be frank with you, I'm constantly going. As little I, I know as little as possible at this moment in time, I, I keep discovering new things inside the world of care. But the one thing I've learned is care is so deeply personal to the individual family, right? Mm-hmm. No two care infrastructures look the same way. The 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 tactics, right? Like whether it's a in-home nanny or a daycare or a babysitter or a development child care center or a school, right? Could be could be common. But the 
needs of the family are so unique, right? Mm-hmm. Like whether a family's going through divorce and they need the mom is going back to, to, to work or the mom is actually working full time and trying to provide now for the full family, all the way through to to, to dual households with, with mothers and fathers, right? You know, it's the expectations of who's managing care, who's triaging right. the care, who's, you know, who's on first, right? Like similarly, it's, it's, you talked about night terrors a year ago, we had experienced something similar and, uh, you know, the person who had to get up was the, the, the person, the child, my, my son was calling, right. Which happened to be me. And he's right. like, daddy, Tim, daddy, Tim. And I'm like, <laughs> literally over. I'm like, this one's on me. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, you know, it's, like, it's like the expectation setting is so dynamic and fluid inside of a family. Yeah. It's just so unique to them. And I think, yeah. This is a good place to talk about our parents, right? So both oh, of us yeah. were given an assignment yeah. to go talk to our, I talked to my dad um, about what it was like, how they managed care, right? Mm-hmm. When, with, with us. So what did you, what did your mom, I, t- I take you talked to your mom? It talked to my mom. Yeah, What'd it's so funny. I, I enjoyed this episode so much. I talked to my mom and I also talked to my sister, who's the mother of five, right? And she's an early educator. She's an early, she's a, a pre- preschool teacher. And uh, I'll give you I'll give you a blended perspective because it was very common, right? My mom said the hardest part about care was not losing herself, like her identity. Mm. She said, I loved you more than you will ever know. And there would be nothing I wouldn't do for you. But it was very hard for me, speaking for my as my mom, is what she said, for me to determine where that stopped and where I began. Mm. And it was really rich as we were digging into it. And this was like an hour long, like tears were shed and things were, you know, like they, like you go through memories and it's like very, it was like very, you know, what it took her back, right? Usually my mom's interactions and I are like, how you doing? What's going on? Yeah. High five. How are the kids? Like, you know, all the good stuff you would normally get through. So I have a question for you. I didn't prep her for it. <laughs> I kind of took her by surprise. And so she was taking it back and she said, you know, it, it took a few minutes to think about it. And she goes, I really do think it was the most difficult part for me was as you age, it's your ambitions, your goals, your dreams, your perspective, and how do you support your children and their dreams, their goals, their perspective, while also pursuing your own and not have it be self-centered or self-natured? Or like, how does it, you know, because as a parent, we want to do everything for our children. Hmm. And she said, the, the thing she learned the most out of that experience was, she said, sometimes it's okay for you to fail and it's not my fault. <laughs> and that was like, I was like, wow. Oh, so that's why you did like, that's why. <laughs> that's why those things happened. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. And it was really good. It was a good reflection. She, you know, she's, she's very, she's very conscious of where she is at this point in her life. You know, my mom's now in her late seventies and she's very, it's, it's in, Incredible for me to become friends with my mom and see her so comfortable in her skin, if that makes mm, sense. And I really beautiful. love that. Yeah. That's really beautiful. How about I am. Um, and then we should have we should have both of them on the show next Oh time. my gosh. <laughs> I don't think I, you're ready for Susan. She is a mess, I'm telling you. Trust me, you haven't met Mike. <laughs> Mike is my dad likes to call himself. I am. Um, yeah, he was very excited about this. Like, I sent him like the email, and then I was supposed to come on Saturday, and then I got like busy, and he's like, w- I, w- "I'm ready when you're ready." <laughs> you know what I mean? So it was very interesting. Like, so we kind of had this general conversation of like, what was care like? What did what did what it look like? Because I I don't know about you, but like sometimes I've learned like we all oftentimes have our own narratives that we tell ourselves. Mm-hmm. 
And so I've always, in my mind, seen my father as the primary caretaker in our relationship. Mm. And so when we talk about that, he confirms that, right? So he, my mother, um, her job, because she worked in a, a factory, had to wake up. You know, she was an engineer. She was working in an engineer, but in a plant, sorry. So she had to get, she was out the door by like 7.15, 7.30, wow. and she wasn't home till 6.00. Now, my dad was, you know, because of his job, he had to visit, like, construction sites. So he had a much more flexible job. So he was the one that did drop off and pick up. And um, and I think that has to do with a lot of, especially in my own marriage, a lot of my own expectations mm. of, like, you know, I, you know, of, like, wait, why aren't you doing that? Why am I doing the laundry? Why am I doing the dishes, <laughs> right? Like, because I think, you know, I very much grew up in a home where my father did that. Yeah. And so, so he was the one that was making or negotiating, finding the babysitter, deciding, you know, what to do. So there was, um, so basically, you know, they made about $600, five $600 a week, and they paid about $50 a week for childcare. So he was saying, I was like, so was childcare your biggest expense? He's like, you know, it's funny when you, besides the mortgage, yeah, it was. Mm. And so that was a big, like, thing for the family of like how do we negotiate this how do we trim this down can it can i cut it up you know so we there was this woman named barbara that had um that had a uh, a house across the street from the school and so she had three kids of her own so my dad i don't know he doesn't remember how he found her but she was our babysitter and he would drop us off in the morning and sometimes we would go there after school and then he would pick us up you know when he was when he was done and he was re- reminded me though, though, so he was in charge of packing our lunch or making us making us eat in the morning, and of course he would forget sometimes, yeah. and so we would just like take food from her refrigerator. And this one time, like I got attacked by her dog, by the dog, and had to get stitches in my head no. because. And he, of course, after our conversation, he texts me he's like, "All right, I gotta confess. Uh, the reason why you were attacked by that dog is I forgot to, I forgot to feed you that day, and you were stealing something from the refrigerator, and like the dog basically, you know, came at you. I was like, "All right, thanks, Dad, for one of the most <laughs> traumatic." moments of my life was a care, you know, a caregiving like fail. Um, but you know, and then, you know, we talked a little bit about like what I was, we were a latchkey kid when we were little and my Mm -hmm. dad would like hide the key underneath the brick. And there were times he confessed, you know, when he, cause that he, you know, had to just take us to the construction site because he wanted to save money. And he would just like leave us in the car and like lock the door. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, you know, you can't do that anymore. Right. He's like, yeah, I probably couldn't do that back then either. But so, you know, it's, it's funny. I think you look back and you laugh about these, you know, we kind of make fun of, but you know, I think yeah. for them at that point, it was definitely a big stressor. And even then like caregiving, was a big, big concern, yeah. you know, for my parents. It, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier in regards to parents are figuring it out as well. You know, it, it's, 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 it's great hearing your dad share that story and, and be vulnerable in that way, right? It's, it's though bringing you to the construction site, putting you in the car, locking the door, making sure that you were like, like the intention is the safety, but at the same time, it's like, you know, can't afford or, or don't have the, the means or the person was available, whatever it is that the caregiving 
wasn't there, you know, parents are trying to figure it out as well, mm-hmm. right? Like they're trying to make life work, so to speak. You know, many times my mom would be at the hospital and I would have to walk to the hospital after school. And I just remember one night she just didn't have anyone overnight. So I had to sleep in an empty hospital bed, like, you know, like a, a one of the gurneys. Yep. And it it was okay. It's normalized, right? But it's just in that moment, I of course was not present to like they're figuring it out too. Like, totally. you know, they're trying and to how stressful is that for her, right? Where she's like, she's trying to do her job and like, okay, is Tim okay? Like, yeah, no, I think, and I think it feels like back then they had a lot more grace. Yeah. Um, And I think one of the things in the pandemic, I think we're starting to give parents a little more grace. Yeah. You know, and but I, th- I don't know if we're back to where it was before, which is like, that's your personal problem or your private problem. Don't bring that to work. Right. But... um. They also like the other, I mean, this must be interesting for you, given what you do with cure.com. It's also like, they had a lot more trust. Mm. They had to, right? They had to trust Barbara, right? Mm-hmm. A woman, like, which I'm sure he didn't like vet, you know what right. I mean? Or like do, <laughs> right. a, do what's it called, you know, one of those, uh, you know, and they had to trust that we could like walk home. They had to trust while he was in his construction site doing his job that his two kids were not being kidnapped, right? Like yeah. there was just, a, there's a lot, right? And and I think a lot of parents are negotiating so many of those same things. Totally. You know, both of Without our the mechanisms did. of being able to validate that, right? There weren't cell phones. Yeah. There weren't like people who yeah. you would, there was no check-in point where I'm texting my parents and saying, I'm safe, I'm home. Like to your point, it's like, I... They're kind of hope and prayer that I got home safe walking home from school, right? They have a belief system you did, right? Like they're like, they trust you to be able to do it. And, you know, but again, it goes back to parents had to make life work for them, but it is a stressful situation for them to, you know, your father, I'm sure it was stressful going to the construction sites with you. It's, and not that anything was misbehaved or anything to that effect, but it's like, not what he had probably envisioned, right? Not probably what he was like, all right, I'm gonna go to work and my daughters are coming along with me, right? Like it was like, you know, this is how life presents itself. And and you touched upon it. I think it's so important to underscore. Employers have to show empathy and compassion. You know, like that's one of the things that I think really is important. And to your point, I think the pandemic really kicked open those doors in a lot of ways. You had little ones running around in the background of Zooms or, you know, you had parents going, I can't go do this in-person job because I don't want to expose my family. Like there was a lot of conversations that got forced into the forefront of of society saying, I do have a family. I do have obligations. They are the priority. Yeah. When a lot of times we've been trained, I I know myself as a corporate worker, I, I, I did an article on this for, for for Harvard Business Review that you're you're trained to put the company first. You know, you're trained to make the, the and it's not even like you do. It's almost like you're trained to give the perception that what family? I don't have a family. It's job old. Yeah. Like I'm I'm here. I'm yeah. dedicated. I've got a Wait, job. Those kids, you know? kids that's music. Yeah, yeah you know I mean? <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> They'll take care of themselves. They'll figure it all out. Right. Like it's like that whole thing. And uh, you know, even to the place where I was like, you know, walking into the delivery room and I was on a work call and then I hung up and I was like, I don't get this moment again. And no. I think that, I think society got to take that breath and see that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I- Yeah, that's right. And it's like the other, you know, what the other part, you know, as we're, as we're talking about what this podcast is going to be, you know, I would say it's like between like, in, you know, uh, investigative journalist meets pissed off mom, right? <laughs> it's like in talking to my dad and then hearing you talk to Susan, it's like, 
not much has changed in 40 mm. plus years. It's true. Like, really it's kind of like what our parents were doing. Now you have amazing services like care.com now where now dad doesn't, you know, find out from Barbara talking to somebody in the supermarket. He can actually go online and maybe there's a little bit more vetting. Yeah. But, but the basics haven't really changed. That's true. Um, and I want to understand why, right? Why... Is it, why is it so fundamentally American for us to feel like this is your own personal problem that you have to figure out? And what can we do to change it? It feels like to me, and I don't know if you feel this way, that like change is possible, like that we can fix the structure of care, that there are a lot of amazing entrepreneurs that are doing inter- interesting things. There's opportunities for, you know, government solutions. Like it feels like there's some partisan, you know, bipartisan support for this. And Absolutely. so like the time is... The time is now um, for this. Yeah, absolutely. I I think also there is a space now that didn't exist in my parents' generation of people who are vocal and advocates and stand up and are change agents such as yourself. You know, you stand up in front of, look at the impact you have made with Girls Who Code. You know, you are giving possibility and futures to to girls who didn't have a seat at the table in a lot of instances and weren't necessarily present to their greatness. And I think that happens with parents now too. I think parents are now going, wow, the entire infrastructure failed me at a certain point in time, right? In terms of schools were closed and not not a fault of the schools, daycares were closed, things, things weren't present that I was really reliant upon. And what do I want to advocate for moms who are actually having to do this 24-7 and having to pick up all the slack and doing the things that you want, right? And it's not just moms. Dads do a lot of the work too. But in the primary instance, moms are the ones who are taking on the additional hours of work, which you've advocated with Marshall Plan for Moms so so eloquently. That yeah. How as a society can we reshape government programs, institutions to really support moms to be able to be successful and know that they have an infrastructure support that doesn't fail them. And it goes back to, I think how we started this podcast, which is like, I love my kids. Mm. The the hardest thing I fought for was to be a mom. And I know that there's moments where I feel like the, the memories that are robbed for me are my memories or my moments with them because Mm. I'm trying to balance work. And like, is there a way, if there's ever been a way to reimagine a different way to do things, to live and to work, I think that that moment is now. Um, And so I think pushing people along when they take this journey with us to say, this is something you should be advocating for. This is something that you, this is something that actually more, maybe more so than any other issue in the immediacy can really fundamentally change your life and your children's lives. Um, So. Completely. For parents, for even people who aren't parents today, who potentially want to have kids in the future, yep. those who don't want to have kids, you know, like it actually is a societal impact as a whole you're pointing to, which is you sh- we shape the policies, we shape the conversation, we start to advocate, we get the right things in place. It has societal ramifications for generations to come that will impact everyone's quality of life. Absolutely. And I really do think that that, I'm looking forward to this exploration with you. I really do think that that's going to be the game changer. And I'm glad I get to be with you to do a small part in that. Me too. So everyone buckle up. It's going to be a fun ride. And thank you for joining us. (laughs) Thank you so much. Talk soon. Bye.